Hi there. Welcome to Yokine Baptist Church. The following sermon was recorded at one of our regular Sunday services. I hope you find it encouraging and it draws you closer to God. Enjoy. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Leave here. Turn east and hide in the Kareth Ravine, Ravine, east of the Jordan. You will drink from the brook and I have directed the ravens to supply you with food. So he did what the Lord had told him. He went to the Kareth Ravine, east of Jordan, and stayed there. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. Sometime later, the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him, Go at once to Zarephath in the region of Sidon and stay there. I have directed a widow there to supply you with food. Just to, just to recap what the video told us, and uh, okay, let me, let me give apologies in advance. Sorry, Hayley. <laughs> um, there's, there's a lot of big, long names... Um, and places, and I, I know that it's hard to sign that kind of stuff, but I know you can handle it. <laughs> yeah. So, following the leadership of Moses and Joshua, the, the people of God were then ruled by a succession of judges, uh, finishing with Samuel the prophet. And then... Um, Eventually, though, they wanted to be a kingdom like the other nations, and so God formed this kingdom with Solomon as their first king. Uh, sorry, with Saul as their first king. And so you can see them up here. Uh, you can see uh, Saul was the first king, um, followed by David. Now, God had given this prophecy to David. He said, I declare to you that the Lord will build a house for you. When your days are over and you go to be with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you. One of my own sons, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He's the one who built a house for me and I will establish his throne forever. I will be his father. He will be my son. I will never take my love away from him as I took it away from your predecessor. That's Saul. I will set him over my house and my kingdom forever. His throne will be established forever. So the first question you need to ask is, did that happen? Because as we know, all prophecy is conditional on people doing the right things for God to give his blessing. Uh, And unfortunately, Solomon, the son of David, David ruled for 40 years, Solomon ruled for 40 years, uh, and so the the kingdom of David basically only lasted 80 years. Um, Now, for David's sake, God didn't split the kingdom during Solomon's time, 
but he did do it during the time of Solomon's son, as the videos just told us. And so the two tribes uh, then split and we end up with two kingdoms. The kingdom in the north, uh, which is now called Israel, the kingdom in the south, which is now called Judah, and they never reunited again. And so we go through a big succession of kings uh, and down the row, and I'm really only focusing on the Israel ones on the left, until you get down uh, to... And, and every one of these was bad kings. Everyone failed to measure up to God's standards. Every one of them worshipped other gods. Every one of them led that God's people astray. And then eventually they produce the worst one of all, Ahab. His sins were so bad that God had to send his greatest prophet, Elijah, to come and deal with him. And that's who we're going to focus on in a little, little while this morning. And, you know, less than 200 years later, um, Israel as a nation no longer existed. And shortly after that, Judah no longer existed either. So the kingdom was gone. And so you ask yourself that question that we asked at the beginning. Uh, did God set up an everlasting kingdom through Solomon? Well, for the answer to this, we need to go to the prophets who were in exile with, with the Israelites. And we go to Daniel. And Daniel says, I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. That's God. He was given authority, glory and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. His kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. The sovereignty, power and greatness of all the kingdoms under heaven will be handed over to the holy people of the Lord Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and all rulers will worship and obey him. See, we now know that God's promise was ultimately fulfilled in David's descendant, Jesus, our Messiah, the Son of God. Jesus accomplished what no earthly king ever could. He became the perfect king, one who never sinned. I mean, even David, who God called a man after his own heart, sinned badly at times. And as you saw in the video there, what did David do on his deathbed? He helped his son plot to kill his enemies. Not exactly God's heart at that point in time. But Jesus was a perfect king and he is the ruler of an everlasting kingdom and his kingdom is no longer made up of just Hebrews. It includes all who will follow Christ. And so Peter says, my brothers and sisters, Make every effort to confirm your calling and election, for if you do these things, you will never stumble, and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. You see, that's why we come to the Lord's table. And as we come to the Lord's table, it's both a look back and a look forward. We look back to what Jesus has done for us on the cross but we look forward to celebrating together in the presence of Christ in his eternal kingdom. Here's what happened when Jesus celebrated that uh, first pa uh, Passover with his disciples. 
When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfilment in the kingdom of God. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And so after taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among you. See, that is the hope we embrace every time we come around the Lord's table. Every time we celebrate, every time we take up the bread and wine, we're making a statement of hope. A hope that we will celebrate with Christ in his eternal kingdom. I'm sure I'll work it where I'm up to here. And so we read, Jesus took bread, gave thanks and broke it. And he gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way after the supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. And so we're going to celebrate around the Lord's table this morning. Uh, we have um, the bread, which speaks of the body of Christ. If you're gluten-free, we have some gluten-free as well. We have the cup which speaks of the blood of Christ freely given for us. And as we do this, we're looking back and we're, and we're giving thanks and we're celebrating what it is that Christ has done for us. And at the same time, we're looking forward with anticipation for God to fulfil that promise of an eternal kingdom that you and I get to share in an eternal kingdom where we get to be in the presence of God himself. And so we're going to just play some uh, music now in the background. I'm going to invite you to come and, and, and take the bread and take the cup. Uh, eat the bread in your own time. Hold on to the cup and head back to your seat and then when everyone's been served, we'll all drink together as one people. Come and celebrate the Feast of the Lord. Well, we've already had a bit of an introduction, so I'm just going to jump straight into the text here. The author of Kings only gives us a, a really a, a brief look at the first six kings of Israel, but he spends a lot of time itemising the sins of the seventh king, Ahab. So what are these sins? Well, the first one is that he was guilty of idol worship. Now, this would have been a bad enough sin by itself, but as the king, he didn't just personally worship Baal. He led the nation of Israel into worshipping Baal too. Ahab had a, um, a, an, a temple built uh, for Baal Melkart. He was the particular version of Baal who lived in Phoenicia, where his uh, father-in-law came from. Uh, and he also um, built an Asherah pole, which was uh, an image of the earth goddess Asherah. The second thing that he did as a sin was that he rebuilt Jeris uh, Jericho. Now, this makes sense from a strategic standpoint. Israel's biggest threat came from the north. It came from the, the Arameans, um, and Jericho was in a strategic position to defend that part of the country. But Jericho was also an important city to God. This was the first city that the Israelites had to conquer 
when they originally entered the promised land. And unlike all the other cities, God didn't use an army to defeat them. You may recall the story that on this occasion, God himself brought down the walls of Jericho. And so after that victory, we read that um, they burned the whole city and everything in it, but all the silver and gold, all the articles of bronze and iron, all of that stuff they took into the treasury of the Lord. Everything else was burned. And at that time, Joshua pronounced this solemn oath. Cursed before the Lord is the one who undertakes to rebuild this city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn son, he will lay its foundations. And at the cost of his youngest son, he will set up its gates. And we know from our reading that that's exactly what happened. Um, So we read that in Ahab's time, this guy by the name of Hiel at at Ahab's uh, direction um, rebuilt Jericho. He laid its foundation at the cost of his firstborn son Abiram and he set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son Segub in accordance with what the word of the Lord spoken by Joshua. Now there are a couple of kind of scholarly opinions about how this might have happened. Um, For some people they say, okay, well, maybe at the beginning of the building project he lost his first son. You know, when it got to the end of the building project he lost his last son. Um, Others suggest that his sons uh, died because they drank from a tainted spring in the city. Uh, Jewish tradition tells us that uh, the prophet Elisha cleansed that spring uh, later on for the people. Um, Or it may also be that back in those days, a number of the the pagan gods required a sacrifice. And so when you laid the foundation of a city, you had to sacrifice a son. And so this guy might have sacrificed his son. Um, So whatever the exact meaning, whatever, whatever actually happened, we know that Joshua's prophecy came true, that rebuilding Jericho came at a very high price. And then there is the third sin. And possibly, in the eyes of our author, possibly his worst sin was marrying the bar-worshipping daughter of a bar-worshipping king. Jezebel was the daughter of Ethbaal. Uh, Now, if you see where the arrow's pointing up there, this is our map of uh, the land of Israel at the time. And so you can see the blue section down below is the southern kingdom of Judah, and its capital is Jerusalem. The pink section there is the kingdom, the northern kingdom, now known as Israel, with its capital in Samaria. And you can see a couple of other important areas. On the left, you've got the Philistines, that's the Gaza Strip that is still there today. And then you've got the Phoenician territories with the cities of Tyre and Sidon up there in the top. And this is where um, Jezebel's father came from. These other territories that are kind of stripy They're basically ones that did belong to Judah and Israel at first, but some of the surrounding nations like Aram and Aram and and Moab had started to come in and conquer those areas. So they are disputed enemy-held territories. And so you have Ethbaal, you notice his name is named after Baal, who lives up here in Sidon, right at the very top. And this guy, at the age of 36, so he was a real young achiever, he um, murdered his brother 
and took over the city of Tyre as well, so he ended up owning that whole kingdom up there. Now, from a strategic standpoint, it made sense for Ahab to marry the king of a Phoenician. So you see they've got this giant threat up here, the Arameans right up the top there, that giant threat. So having the Phoenicians on their side made a lot of sense from a military standpoint. I mean, after all, hadn't Solomon done the same? Solomon married hundreds of daughters of foreign kings for political alliances. Um, the other thing that it did, you probably can't see this on your map because it's very small, but just in that little tiny bit where it joins Phoenicia and, uh, uh, and, and Israel, it used to be that Phoenicia owned that, but as part of the set, part of the treaty that he made with the marriage, Israel was given back that area, and that includes the area around Mount Carmel. And later on in the life of Elijah, you'll find there's a very famous story that we're going to cover that happens around Mount Carmel, which was basically the heart of Baal worship uh, in Israel. So from a strategic standpoint, what Ahab did made a lot of sense. But from a spiritual standpoint, from the standpoint of our author of Kings, uh, it, it was terrible. Because what it meant was that he formed alliances, not just with the king, but with that king's God. He led the people of Israel away from worship of the true God. Now Jezebel... Um, whose name was probably more like Jezebel, again named after Baal. Um, her name uh, comes from uh, the words meaning, where is Baal? As in, I'm calling on Baal, I'm praying to Baal. That's her name. But it also had a very unfortunate meaning in Hebrew. In Hebrew, it meant dung. How you doing there? You keeping up all right? Yeah, yeah. That's all right. We're almost done with all the names. It meant dung, manure. Uh, so her name, uh, this new queen of Israel led the people away from the one God to the worship of Baal. And for our author here, instead of calling her Jezebel, he calls her Jezebel, which means dung. Her name actually ended up becoming um, a byword for everything that is wrong. Uh, in teach, false teachers. So if you look in the book of Revelation, for instance, uh, John's writing to the churches there, uh, and the words of Jesus are, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel. In other words, whoever this woman was in the, in the church that was doing the false teaching, Jesus named her after this evil queen. You tolerate Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and eating food sacrificed to idols. I've given her time to repent of her immorality, but she's unwilling. So from a political, from a military standpoint, from a human perspective, a lot of the things that Ahab did made a lot of sense. He set up well-placed forts. He set up political alliances. But from a spiritual perspective... He, did, he had done all of this at the expense of his relationship with God. You know, at times in our life, we are called upon to make decisions. 
And sometimes, as Christians, we make decisions that people outside the church, people who look at it only from a human perspective, struggle to understand why we do it. Why are you making that decision? That decision doesn't benefit you. You're not gaining anything from it because they're not looking at it from the same point of view as we are. In Colossians we read, where are we? Yep. In Colossians we read, since you've been raised with Christ, set your hearts on the things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. You see, we are not mere humans. We are the people of God. We have his Holy Spirit within us. And so we make our decisions based on the leading of God. We make our decisions based on what God wants for our lives, whether our actions will benefit other people, whether our actions will bring glory to him. We don't just make decisions based on a human perspective. So those are the sins of Ahab. Now suddenly, this strange character appears on the scene. We're not really given hardly any information about this guy. Now we know that in Israel there was a school of prophets. Okay, so in the capital city of the, both north and south, there was what was called a school of prophets. And these were the people that the, the king would go and get advice from, from time to time. Uh, Elijah wasn't one of them. He was just some guy from out in the desert somewhere. So if you look on the map again, you'll remember that he is from a place called Tishbe. See, just up here in Gilead. And you can see that Gilead is in part of this disputed territory. He's in that place where the foreign nations had taken over. So Elijah is some strange guy that turns up out of nowhere from some obscure little town uh, in enemy-occupied territory. And so he's travelled 70 kilometres to Samaria, the capital of Israel, to give his judgment to the king. And this is what he says. Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, As Yahweh the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain for the next few years except at my word. Now I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall for that conversation. That would have been interesting. Here's the king in his, in his palace with all his wealth, with his you know, beautiful wife of a foreign king where they have everything at their disposal. They've got their prophets that they consult from time to time. And here comes this guy from nowhere. He walks into the, into the, um, into the palace. He says, this is the word of God. It's not going to rain, and he leaves again. And they must be going, what just happened? Who was that guy? You know, I reckon, they, I reckon they would have had a good laugh about it. I mean, oh, who is this idiot? What a nobody he is. What have, we got, what have we got to fear from this raggedy guy out from out in the bush, you know? Well, maybe after a month without rain, they might have decided, oh, we better start praying to Baal for rain. Maybe after three months, they began to pray a bit more fervently. You know, come on, Baal, where's our rain? I mean, after all, Baal is the god of the storm and the rain. 
we don't, we're not worried about that guy. We'll just keep praying. We'll keep praying. It'll happen. You know, maybe after six months, the farmers are starting to get a bit antsy. Ooh, our crops aren't going to grow. We can't do anything. What's happening? And so maybe they start making some sacrifices to Baal. Perhaps after the first year of this drought, they started to think, maybe there's something about that prophet after all. Maybe they stopped laughing at him. I know they stopped laughing at him because I know that a couple of years later, Jezebel put her efforts into trying to kill Elijah. So she recognised that he was a threat, eventually. You know, sometimes sinners think they're getting away with it. You know, they think, oh, well, I'm not seeing God's judgment. You know, you've, you've probably seen people say, oh, well, go and strike me down, God. Oh, there, see, God isn't real. He hasn't struck me down. And they think they're getting away with it because God hasn't acted yet. It's easy to fool ourselves into thinking God won't act because he hasn't acted yet. You know, the psalmists struggle with this a lot too. You know, some of, the, some of the Psalms are people pouring out their heart to God, saying, you know, I'm serving you, God, yet I'm suffering, and I see these guys over here who are terrible sinners, and everything seems to be perfect. I mean, uh, look at this Psalm. Psalm chapter 73, for instance. I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They're free from common human burdens. They're not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace and they clothe themselves with violence. See, I can't tell you that God is going to instantly judge bad people. You know, I don't believe in karma. You know, we talk about, oh, well, that's karma. Karma is not a real thing. You know, sometimes God's judgment is delayed. Sometimes it looks like people are getting away with it. But God often delays his judgment because it's mercy. Remember in the passage in Revelation where he spoke about Jezebel and Jesus said, I've given her so much opportunity to repent, but now I'm going to judge. And God does that. And so Peter talks about this too. Peter says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. See, God is a righteous judge. God will make the wicked count for their sins but he's also a loving and a merciful God and he wants them to repent. He doesn't want to send the lightning bolt down and kill them. He wants them to turn back to him and come into this family that we're so blessed to be a part of. Eventually, everyone will have to stand before God and give an account. But in the meantime, God is desperately reaching out in love to these sinners and trying to draw them to him in grace and mercy. Lastly, we have God's provision. 
I don't know if you um, can remember as far, you know, some, some of you are old enough, uh, you can remember as far back as the Exodus. I'm not looking at anyone in particular. No. In the Exodus, God sent all these plagues upon the Egyptians to try and, you know, force Pharaoh to let his people go. But the Israelites, his people, were largely protected from the worst of those things. You know, they, they, still, had to, they still had to suffer. There were still, you know, the Egyptians took it out on them. But they were kept from the worst of it. Now, in this case, however, everyone suffered. When the rain stopped falling, everyone suffered. No one was kept, kept from it, apart from Elijah. Elijah was protected from this. So in uh, chapter 17, verse 1, we read, The word of the Lord came to Elijah, Leave here, turn eastward, and hide in the Kerith ravine east of the Jordan. You will drink from the brook, and I've directed the ravens to supply you with food. So Elijah has given this brief prophecy. He's then headed about 100 kilometres north, back into enemy territory, um, well north of his hometown, and he's gone into this ravine that has this incredible spring that just keeps lasting and lasting, and ravens are bringing him food. I have no idea how that stuff works. But God is looking after him. God is keeping him. This is a wonderful scenario. What's going on here? You need to really kind of get a picture of what life was like for Elijah. You see, he didn't have to travel miles to go looking for water. The water was right there. He didn't have to travel going hunting for food. The food came to him. He didn't have to worry about being hunted and attacked by Jezebel and Ahab because he's in enemy-occupied territory where they couldn't go. And so God's kept him in this little bubble and for a year all he had was himself and God. You know, you talk about Jesus going off into the wilderness, Moses going off into the wilderness. This is Elijah's time of preparation and training, drawing close to God, hearing God's word with no other distractions. Everyone else in the land, all they can think about is there's no rain, we're starving. That's all they can think about. Elijah doesn't have to worry about any of that. All he has to think about is his walk with God and hearing the word of God. So just like Moses, when he came back from the wilderness, became a powerful prophet. Jesus, when he came back from the wilderness, launched his powerful ministry. So Elijah, when he came back from the wilderness, launched his powerful ministry. And so the drought continued. Eventually, even the source of water that Elijah had started to dry up. And so God said to him, now go to Zarephath in the region of Sidon and stay there. I've directed a widow to bring you food. So you might remember, so here's Zarephath. It's right up here. It's back where Jezebel came from. Maybe a year ago, Elijah wasn't ready. Maybe a year ago, Elijah needed to be in safe circumstances. But after a year of being with God, 
Now he's ready. And God sends him right into the heart of Baal's territory. And he says to him, right in the middle of that territory there, I've prepared somebody and she's going to look after you because I'm going to, prepare, I'm going to care and provide for her. See, God does care for his people. You know, the world is a difficult place. The last year and a half has been a nightmare for many people. And God doesn't just take us out of the world, you know, as though, oh, we never need to face the problems of the world. But God does keep us safe and secure in his hands within the world. See, contrary to what the prosperity preachers want to tell you, life isn't all a bed of roses. Life is not going to be perfect. You're not always going to have everything you want whenever you want it. And just because life is sometimes tough, that doesn't mean God doesn't care about you. That doesn't mean you've somehow lacked the faith to get all the things you think you deserve. It just means that we can't escape from living in this sin-filled world that we all live in. But you know, it's in those times that we learn the provision of God. It's in those times that we draw closer to Him. Sometimes it's out of the darkest moments in my life that I felt the closest to my Heavenly Father. Elijah is a fascinating character. And he and Ahab couldn't be further apart. You know, one is a king. He's living in his palace. He's got his wealth and his power around him. The other is a humble man who has nothing from a small town in enemy-occupied territory. And it would be easy from a human perspective, you know, as many people do, to go, oh, well, the king must be blessed by God. He's got all this. God must be blessing him. Elijah, oh, he's got nothing. Obviously, he's out of step with God. But that would be to look at things only from a human perspective. We are called to look at life from a heavenly perspective. And with heavenly perspective, we see that there is more to our life than the immediate circumstances we can see and touch right here. There will be times that we make decisions that other people think are crazy because they're, they're decisions that maybe don't look like they're going to make us benefit us, but they may be decisions that benefit others in the name of the Lord. Or they may be decisions that bring glory to God's name, even if in the short term um, they make life tougher for us. And so people won't, won't understand why we make those decisions. It might seem counterintuitive to them, but we are called to look at life from God's perspective. Often it's in those tough times, those desperate times, that we draw closest to God. You know, Elijah could have, could have stayed in Samaria, in the capital city. He could have joined the school of prophets. You know, he could have told the king what he wanted to hear. He would have had money. He would have had all his food provided. 
Everything would have been wonderful for him. And instead, he chose to speak God's hard truth. He wanted to look at things from God's perspective. And so he suffered. But also, in the midst of that, here's a guy who got to spend a year just in the presence of God. And how precious was that? The time that God had prepared Elijah to become the greatest prophet that Israel ever saw. It gave him the faith and the qualities of character he needed to endure what was to come ahead and become one of the most powerful ministries in the world. Let's pray together. Lord, we, we look at the life of Elijah and we see a, a life that had so many ups and downs. We see a man who, from a human perspective, it didn't look like he had a lot. It looked like he was poor. It looked like he was suffering, where the king had everything. And yet, the king didn't have a relationship with you. The king didn't get to, to spend a year in your presence just learning your word and your ways. And so from a human perspective, it looked like he struggled, but from your perspective, Elijah couldn't have been richer. And we know, Lord, sometimes we look at things from a human perspective and we do things because we think they'll benefit us. We think only in the short term rather than in heavenly terms. And so, Lord, forgive us when we fail to see things your way. Help us, Lord, to always see things from your perspective. We know that we have your Holy Spirit within us, guiding and directing us, Lord. Help us to listen to him. And, Lord, we know that um, poor old Elijah had to suffer because of what he did. And we know that there will be times that we will struggle, that we will suffer when we stand for your name. And other people will not understand us. But help us, Lord, to be strong. Help us, Lord, to know that we are serving you. Help us to avoid the sins of Ahab. Help us to avoid the sin of thinking that we know it all. But instead, Lord, always be looking to you for your guidance, for your direction. Help us always to act in ways that will benefit others and ways that will bring glory to your name. For we live to serve you, Lord. We live to honour you. We give you thanks and praise in the precious name of your Son. Amen. Thanks for joining us today. An extra thanks to those who have generously donated to our ministry. You can find more sermon recordings or videos on our website, yokinebaptist.church, or by connecting with us on Facebook. God bless you.